Hey everybody, Jeremy here. And as you could see by the title of this episode, you are about to listen to an interview that I had with Dr. Jason Lyle. He is a very, very smart dude. And a lot of the things he said went over my head, but uh, the stuff I was able to grab onto, I was really edified by, and I think you will be too. So I hope you enjoy this conversation that we have, not just about the amazing evidences of creation in the world of astrophysics, but also how to engage people with a secular worldview, a naturalistic worldview, when it comes to matters of creation. Uh, this episode is sponsored by the Do Theology Store. Go to store.dotheology.com and support this podcast by grabbing some merch or stickers. I guess stickers are merch. Grab something if you if you want to support the podcast. We get a few bucks every time you buy something on there. Store.dotheology.com. And uh, after the music, you'll just be jumping into my conversation with Dr. Jason Lyle. Thanks for listening. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Dr. Jason Lyle is a Christian astrophysicist who researches issues pertaining to science and the Christian faith. He earned a master's degree and PhD in astrophysics at the University of Colorado Boulder and is the founder of the Biblical Science Institute. His latest book, Fractals, The Secret Code of Creation, is racking up five-star reviews on Amazon and can be found wherever you buy books. Dr. Lyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be with you today. Well, you are an astrophysicist, and it's not too often that people get to hear from an astrophysicist. So uh, maybe explain what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what first interested you in astrophysics? Astrophysics is really the study of the universe. Anything that's beyond Earth would be in that category. And I've been interested in outer space since I was a little kid, and I would see these amazing images. I mean, when I was a kid, it was before Hubble, but nonetheless, there were still some pretty pictures. And of course, we've got uh, even more beautiful pictures now that Hubble's up there. And of course, James Webb is up there now as well, the Sp James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, it's just amazingly beautiful. And it's, it's kind of abstract. And for the, I think for these reasons, the fact that the universe is so big and it's beautiful and it's abstract, um, all of those things attracted me to that field. So I've been interested in astrophysics since I was a little kid. Hmm. Now, you just mentioned Webb and Hubble. We have recently gotten these pictures back from the Webb device. I don't know the right word for it, spacecraft, whatever it is. Maybe could you just give your input on what that is and, and what that means for the astrophysicist community? There, yeah, there, there have been several released images now that, um, that are out there, and they'll, they'll continue to do more um, week after week. But uh, the one that really caught my attention, and it was the first one that we, we saw, was the, is kind of the, the um, James Webb version of the Hubble Deep Field. It's, it's a view of the 
uh, zoomed in of the most distant galaxies that we can see with modern instrumentation. Mm. And boy, is it spectacular. Mm. You see in this image just thousands and thousands of galaxies in, 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 in full color. Now they've been, they've been shifted up to the spectrum that we can see because the red shifted James Webb telescope looks in infrared, which is below what we can normally see, but it shifts it up to our frequencies and it's stunningly beautiful, these galaxies. Mm. And you'll see arcs of galaxies too, because there's, there's like actually a cluster of galaxies closer to us. And then there's another cluster farther away. And the light from the distant cluster has been bent by the gravity of those hundreds of thousands of stars. And it forms the, it, ma it makes the background of galaxies look sort of stretched out, kind of smeared hmm. into these Einstein arcs. That's something Einstein predicted. So it's quite amazing. We see fully designed uh, galaxies. We see spiral galaxies out there. And so it's, it's very consistent with the way that, that God tells us that he created. He spoke those things into existence on day four of the creation week, and we get to enjoy them now in unprecedented detail. Now, the web has also produced some other images. Um, uh, those for me weren't quite as interesting, but they're still interesting. They're, they, they released some data from an exoplanet that was transiting in front of its star, and that allows us to get information on the composition of the planet. And so they detected mm -hmm. um, water molecules, which is not surprising. Water molecules are very common in the universe. Uh, Earth's the only place we know of that has liquid water, but the water molecule is abundant. So I'm not surprised they found that. Uh, but it's interesting. It's, it's all very interesting. And I can't wait to see what they um, reveal next. Like the depths of the sea. It's just like you, keep, you can't finish the job in discovering what's out there, right? <laughs> um, now, I, before we move on to the next question, I do have to ask, because I saw in your bio on, on the Biblical Science Institute website that while you were at UC Boulder, you studied the surface of the sun. <laughs> not many people can say, uh, what was it like to study the surface of the sun? And how did you not go blind? Like, isn't that a thing that happens when, you when you're looking at the sun? Right. Well, yeah, Galileo did eventually for looking at the sun, but that was before they knew about ultraviolet uh, light, ultraviolet radiation. So I used uh, what we call a SOHO spacecraft, this, the Solar and, and Heliospheric Observatory. And it's a spacecraft that's designed just really for looking at the sun. It's got several different instruments built into it. And the one that I used was the, um, the, the Michelson Doppler imager. And what it does is it takes images of the surface of the sun in different wavelengths. And that allows us to uh, determine the way things are moving on the sun. And uh, it measures magnetic fields as well. And so what I studied was how using the spacecraft, I would get images of the spacecraft, enormous amounts of data, um, you know, many, many gigabytes, which isn't so much these days, but back then, you know, mm. I download 13 gigabytes in a day. And that, that was back then that was a lot of data. Yeah. Um, today you can download that in a few minutes probably, but mm. in any case, um, I'd look at these images and I would, uh, uh, I wrote some computer software that would track these images from one to the next. And it would plot basically, uh, maybe you've seen like on the weather channel, will they have arrows indicating the direction and strength of the winds on earth? Yeah, I did right. that for the sun basically mm. and plotted the, the way things move on the sun and the way things interact with the magnetic fields and made a couple of uh, interesting discoveries, uh, including the detection of giant cell boundaries, um, which are these huge overturning cells, but they're slow. And so it's hard to see these slow motions because there's all this fast motion on the surface, mm. but but I was able to devise uh, some software to be able to detect these slower, very large scale motions and uh, really interesting stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Now, one of the, the things actually probably the main thing that I appreciate about your work and your ministry is that it is a ministry. You're not content to just be a scientist who happens to be Christian, 
but you're an apologist too for the Christian faith and you're using your background in astrophysics to defend the Christian faith. When did you first start incorporating your scientific research into apologetics efforts? I was doing apologetics before I was doing original research. Hmm. So it's always, it's always been an aspect of it, but yeah, even when I was in, uh, when I was in college and, you know, at, at the undergraduate level, I mean, I did a little bit of research that could be considered original, but you, you know, it's mainly the professor that you're kind of tagging along and helping the professor. But yeah. uh, even at that point, that's when I really started getting interested in defending creation in particular, as, as opposed to Darwinian evolution. And uh, I, I'd known since even when I was in high school, I'd been exposed to evolution, having gone through a public high school, they're taught, you know, we're taught that evolution's a fact, it's proved by science. And even at that point, I knew that didn't quite ring true. It's not something that's testable and repeatable in the present. And there was evidence against it, evidence of things like irreducible complexity. And those are still good, good evidences. And, uh, but it was really in college, I really got very interested in defending creation and seeing how the science lines up with that. Uh, It was was at that time I read uh, the Henry Morris book, uh, The Genesis Flood, which, Mm -hmm. uh, which was written in the sixties. And, and uh, it's, it really started kind of the modern creationist revival mm. and very, very logical. Now it's been, you know, there've been updates since then on the science, but the theology in the book's still yeah. good because the Bible hasn't changed. Mm. And so, but, but even when I was in grad school, I was thinking in terms uh, as, as I'm now doing original research at that point, I'm still thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's the fact that God upholds his universe in a consistent way that makes any of this possible. Mm-hmm. And so that just continued to confirm my conviction that God's word is true from the beginning. John Whitcomb, who co-wrote the book, I think, with Henry mm-hmm. Morris, The Genesis Flood. Yeah. I had lunch with him one time. It was oh, 15 yeah. years ago before I had any kind of perspective on <laughs> who I was meeting with. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sweet, sweet man. And that was a very influential book. Came out in the 60s. Is that right? 1960s? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah and Whitcomb, I, I knew him personally. And uh, um, I, pr- I probably had lunch with him too. It's just, it's been a while, but I've, I've uh, had many conversations with him and I wrote the planetarium show at the creation museum and, and John, uh, John Whitcomb saw that and came out and mm. congratulated me. I thought that was pretty cool. Cause he, he has an interest in astronomy too. Oh, okay. so, so we, we hit, we hit it off right away. And of course I just admired that guy. He was, he was mm. a warrior for the, for the kingdom and uh, Amen. yeah, good, good man. Well, I, it made me think as you were, you were talking about how you were interested in apologetics before you were doing original work. I imagine that's kind of, made you open to criticism from people in the scientific community. Like, Oh, well, he's a, he's a Christian guy and he's out here to twist uh, the facts, the scientific facts, just to push his religious agenda. How has there been any of that kind of chatter? Has that made you that like a sense of that made you feel like you have to really uphold your integrity in your scientific work because you are this Christian guy who people think you might have an ax to grind. I mean, how does that dynamic play out? Yeah, you know, all of us we need to have we need to have academic integrity in the work that we do. And I think interestingly most scientists, I think most scientists do, even those that would reject the Christian worldview nonetheless, they have a sense of integrity be- because they know in their heart of hearts the biblical God. Hmm. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, when, when I was an undergraduate, I felt a little bit of a little bit of pressure, I felt a little bit weird, but I was very gracious in the way that I would argue for creation. So, you know, some creationists, I'm sorry to say some creationists are just obnoxious. Yeah. And if, if they get criticized for being obnoxious, well, they kind of have it coming. Yeah. But if you're if you're gracious and you say, you know, here's the way I see things and how you look at it, you know, and, 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 and try to understand your opponent. And so on. That goes a long way. And so as an undergraduate, I didn't have I didn't have too many too many issues. 
it was in graduate school where I really started to feel a little bit of um, serious pressure Hmm. Uh, to not be so vocal about creation. And after my first year of grad school, I, I decided not to talk about creation, at least not in terms of my classes, um, some, occasionally with my classmates, but never with my professors, because at the graduate level, the grading is very subjective. Hmm. And uh, when you're defending your doctoral dissertation, the main thing I was concerned about when I was defending my doctoral dissertation is that somebody would bring up that I'm a, a creationist. And so hmm. Um, after my first year, I wasn't very vocal about it. And that's what I recommend uh, to students who are, who are Christians, very solid Christians, and they're, they're getting a degree in a field of science, especially one that, that mixes in a lot of origin stories like geology, biology, or astronomy. Hmm. Uh, fields like chemistry and engineering, not so much. But I recommend that you not be too um, vocal about your beliefs because Frankly, that's that's not what they should be testing you on. It's not what it, a good professor is not going to test you on your beliefs. They're going to test you on whether you understand the material, mm. and uh, and so that's what you need to demonstrate. You need to understand. You need to demonstrate that you understand their perspective, and so that's the way you answer questions on tests and so on. And I think there's there's perfectly honest and ethical ways to do that. And so I never I never violated my integrity at any point, and yet I wasn't real vocal about being mm. a creationist until I got the PhD. And that's what I recommend. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating and helpful. Uh, you you wrote a book titled "The Ultimate Proof of Creation," which I have right here. I actually bought this at the Creation Museum near the Ark oh. Encounter there in Northern Kentucky. Great. And the subtitle of this book, Doctor Lyle, you were just going for it with this, mm-hmm. resolving the origins debate. Resolving the origins debate. Now that is just an eye popping subtitle. What is the ultimate proof of creation and how does it resolve this intense debate? And, and I'm not asking you to like say everything so that way people don't have a motivation to actually read the book, but, but can you give us some insight into this ultimate proof of creation and how that resolves the debate? Yeah, I think, I think people, when they read that, they'll find it's very different from just about any other book they've read on creation, mm-hmm. because most books that uh, defend creation, they present this great evidence, and, and, I, and I've benefited from many of those books. I have some of them on my shelf back there. Uh, good stuff, evidence from fossils and things like that, but it, it falls short of an, of an absolute proof. And I, and I wanted mm-hmm. to know, can I demonstrate conclusively that creation is true? And I believe you can, but it, it's, a very different, it's a very different way of presenting it than, than most people think. Because if you think about what, what do we use to prove things in, in the field of logic or math or science? I mean, so, some people say you can't prove anything in science. Well, maybe not with certainty, but... Um, but how do we go about establishing that something is true scientifically or, well, we, u- we use the tools of science. We use experimentation. We use observation. We use our senses. We use our mind to rationally uh, deduce things from those evidences. We use laws of logic, right? When we reason, mm-hmm. we have to use laws of logic and so on. All of these tools that we use to prove things ultimately only make sense if the Christian worldview is true. Mm. And so it's, it's kind of ironic. All the, the, the tools that we use to argue creation or evolution are based on creation. And so my point is, if creation weren't true, we wouldn't have these tools or we, or we wouldn't have any reason to trust that they give any kind of reliable results. Hmm. Uh, for example, the let's just take um, laws of logic, for example. Yeah. We all think that we're supposed to be logical, and certainly evolutionists would like to think that they're logical, and we need to apply logic. But what is logic mm-hmm. and, and how does it work and why does it exist and how do we know about it? We have laws like the law of non-contradiction, which says you can't have A and not A at the same time in the same sense. 
Now we all accept that, but where did that law come from? And how do we know that it's true at all times in all places? Some people will say, well, I've never seen that law violated. Granted, I haven't either, but then again, I've never seen Antarctica, but that doesn't mean I can argue that it, therefore Antarctica doesn't exist mm -hmm. just because I haven't personally seen it. Right? Yeah. How do you know there aren't exceptions to the law of non-contradiction? Well, there, there can't be. How do you know? You don't have universal experience. You've not been to Mars to see if the law of non-contradiction works on Mars. You've not been to the future to see if the law of non-contradiction works tomorrow. Right. And yet we all assume that it does. Now, the interesting thing is in the Christian worldview, I can say, hey, I know that the law of non-contradiction exists. I know it works in all places and at all times because, according to Scripture, the, the, the laws of logic stem from the mind of God. The law of non-contradiction is based on God's internal consistency. The Bible says he cannot deny himself. It says if we, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God can't contradict himself. And the Bible says all truth is in God. And so it follows that truth will not contradict truth. You say, well, how do you know that always applies everywhere? Because God is omnipresent. You see, he's sovereign over the entire universe. How do you know it'll work tomorrow? Because God doesn't change with time, right? God is beyond time. He made time. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So God doesn't change. And so he's the only one who's in a position to know that these laws would work at all times and in all places. Now, that's just one example. I could give you many many others, but all the things that we take for granted, the reliability of our senses, makes sense. God made my senses. The capacity of the mind to be rational, that makes sense. I'm made in God's image. He's perfectly rational. I'm made in his image, so I at least have the capacity to be rational. It's been affected by sin. I don't always do it perfectly, but the capacity's there. The universe is orderly. Makes sense. God's imposed order on the universe. See, science assumes that the universe is orderly, that there are patterns to be discovered. And yet that wouldn't make any sense if the universe was just chance. All of these things that we depend on to prove anything are based on the truth of the Bible beginning at, at creation, actually. The, and so the fact that I know the sun will rise tomorrow uh, is, is based on Genesis 8.22. God promises that, that as long as the earth remains, there's going to be sunrise and sunset. There's going to be the seasons and so on. And so, and, and God's the only one who's in a position to know. So basically the Christian worldview with creation at its foundation allows me to justify the scientific method, the basic reliability of my senses, human rationality, dignity and freedom, morality, for that matter. All these things we take for granted only make sense if creation's true. And so if science is a legitimate endeavor, then creation must be true. Mm. And that's a powerful argument because when, when, when you put it that way, what scientific evidence confirms creation? The answer is all of them, mm. because you couldn't do the science unless creation was, was true. Yeah. And this, this gets to the heart of what we bring to a scientific endeavor, the presuppositions, the assumptions, the preconceived notions that we have, it really addresses those. And if we, if we were to consider the secular philosopher what are those starting points or the secular scientists even, but what are those start starting points, those presuppositions and how do they guide those philosophers, those scientists in their thinking when it comes to the age of the universe and the different theories that they have like evolution, but how do those starting points differ from ours and how do those affect their observation of the universe? Okay. Most, most uh, secular scientists embrace some combination of three presuppositions. One is naturalism, which is the belief that nature's the whole show. Everything that exists is part of nature. That necessarily excludes a transcendent 
God who's beyond nature. Uh, now, some of them would say that, well, we, we believe that there's a God, but you should, you should pretend that God doesn't exist when you're doing your science. That's methodological naturalism. You proceed as if there's no God, mm. which makes no logical sense. If you believe there is a God, why yeah. would you pretend that there isn't when you do your science? But in mm. any case, um, and then, so the second one then would be uniformitarianism, which is the idea that the present is the key to the past, that mm. um, basically c- conditions that exist today uh, and rates that occur today have been more or less the same throughout history. There can be some interruptions, but the idea is that most of Earth's features have been produced by the kinds of slow, gradual processes we see today. Mm. Uh, uniformitarianism would immediately eliminate, the, uh, uh, with, without looking at the evidence, before looking at the evidence, it would exclude the possibility of something like a worldwide flood, which and, and, and the massive plate tectonics that occurred at that time that would have pushed up mountains um, you know, within a year. Uh, so that that is immediately excluded if you believe in uniformitarianism. So naturalism, uniformitarianism, and then another one that is commonly embraced, though not universally, is empiricism or strict empiricism, which is the belief that all truth claims are answered by observation, by, by the scientific method. And of course, I, I believe many truth claims can be answered that way. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a scientist. I like science. But there are some questions that cannot be answered by the scientific method, like how do we justify the scientific method itself? There you it go. Can't, yeah. It can't justify itself. Mm-hmm. You need you need something else to justify it. So those are the three presuppositions that that secularists would tend to embrace some combination of those. And for that reason, they tend to believing in things like the Big Bang, um, Darwinian evolution. The, these these are not something that some people get the impression. Well, if you if you just look at the data and you come to it with a blank slate, you have to conclude Darwinian mm-hmm. evolution and the Big Bang. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Um, well, and, a, and basically what you're saying is their slate isn't blank. Their slate right. and, and, precludes and no God says, from the beginning. Yeah, and, and, and no one has a blank slate when they come to the data. I, people think that we're supposed to be that way. And, uh, and I'll admit, I think, I think we shouldn't bring in any unnecessary presuppositions mm-hmm. to the data. I would agree with that. But you can't come to the data with no presuppositions because... Uh, you know, you come, you, you, come, you see a rock on the road and you think, I'm going to do some science on that rock, figure out what it's made of. Um, and I'm not going to use any assumptions. Well, you've already made some assumptions. You've assumed the rock is there because you see it. So you, you've assumed the reliability of your senses. Um, you've assumed that it has a continuity over time such that, you know, what it looks like now, if I do an experiment on it tomorrow, it'll be the same rock. That there's, there's, you know, you make all kinds of assumptions. But most people haven't consciously reflected on the presuppositions that they bring to the evidence. And, and my argument is that the Christian worldview, the presuppositions associated with that supernatural creation, um, it's kind of the opposite of the three presuppositions of the secular supernatural creation. God upholds what he made by what we would call natural law. So, you know, I'm a fan of natural laws. That's an expression of God's power today, but he didn't create the universe that way. And then I believe in uh, at least one catastrophe in Earth's past where there was a massive flood. And then I'm not a strict empiricist. I believe that that science is one way that we can test certain kinds of truth claims. And it's really good for the kinds of truth claims it's designed to test. Mm. But it's not good for testing other kinds like uh, moral questions cannot be settled by the scientific method, for example. Um, So I I come to it with different conclusions, different presuppositions, and therefore I draw different conclusions from the data. And so what I try to do is encourage secular scientists to think through their presuppositions because most of them haven't. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, most people, I don't think, have thought yeah. through them. Uh, yeah. Well, let's let's take this idea of presuppositions and apply it to issues in the world of astrophysics, <laughs> the the universe of astrophysics, I should say. <laughs> um, I've heard you speak before on the magnetic fields and internal heat of planets and moons that are in our uh, galaxy, and how those two realities really point to biblical creation. And, um, I think they're pretty convincing really. Uh, how do these, how do these, the realities, the magnetic fields and the internal heat, how do those point to creation? And then what do the secular scientists say to just very obvious evidences like that? Okay. So yeah, with, with, uh, with the magnetic fields that we find earth has a magnetic field. It's what causes your compass to work. Um, but many of the other planets do too, not all of them, but Jupiter has a really powerful magnetic field and magnetic fields are caused by electrical current. So you got a current going around in the planet's interior, probably in Earth's core, and that generates that um, magnetic field. But electrical current encounters resistance. The Earth's core is not a superconductor. So there's some resistance to that, to that um, flow of electricity, basically. Mm. And that causes the magnetic field to decay over time. And we've been able to measure that. We've been able to mm. measure the decay of Earth's magnetic field for at least a century and a half. Mm. And uh, actually, maybe even a little more than that. But in any case, it's decaying. It appears to be an exponential decay, which is what we would expect based on uh, just basic physics which means uh, exponential basically means as you go back in time, it gets really steep, really fast. And so we think it had been about 20 times stronger at creation Hmm. about 6,000 years ago. And that puts a really strong constraint on the age of the earth, because if you run that equation back, because it's an exponential, if you run it back like 60,000 years, the magnetic field would be stronger than that of a neutron star, which is enough to rip the atoms of your body apart. And so there's no way the earth could be that old, let alone older. And so that seems to me to be pretty compelling evidence that the earth's nowhere near 4.5 billion years old. And that's the same argument could be applied for Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They all have pretty strong magnetic fields. Mercury has a substantial magnetic field, not as strong as the Earth's, but it's a, it's a bitty planet. It's only a third the size of the Earth. And so you would expect its magnetic field to run down quicker, you know, just like the A cell batteries run down quicker than the D cell batteries, mm-hmm. same principle. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's pretty compelling. And then with the, with the internal heat, uh, basically many planets in our solar system emit, they give off more energy in the form of heat than they receive from the sun. And for Jupiter, it's a factor of two. Hmm. So it's get, it gets one unit of energy from the sun, gives away two, gets hmm. one, gives away two. The same is true for um, Neptune. In fact, it's even worse for Neptune. Neptune's like 2.6 to 2.7 times. It gives away more than it's getting from the sun. But if you think about it, logically would mean that those planets are constantly cooling off. They're losing energy to space. And if you do the math, they should have cooled off a long time ago if they were billions of years old. Hmm. But if they're a few thousand years old, they're still rather warm. Be like coming to a, um, uh, an ember of coal that's still warm, you know, it's still glowing. Yeah. You wouldn't say, well, somebody must have left that at the campsite, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You said, no, obviously it's very recent. It's still warm. And so it's the same principle with the planets. Now they're a lot bigger, so they can, they can glow a lot longer. Jupiter can glow for thousands of years. That's okay. But if it's, if it were billions of years old, then it should be an icicle by now. And it's not yeah. now um, secularists are aware of these. And they've, they've proposed mechanisms to try to um, get around the implication that these planets are young. 
In the case of magnetic fields, the most common explanation is that the decay, even though it appears to be exponential, really isn't. It's actually sinusoidal. It goes up and down, it goes up, you know, and so on. And so the idea is that um, uh, the Earth's magnetic field actually has some kind of mechanism that not only flips it, but also, and by the way, we do think the, the field flipped rapidly during the flood year mm. because plate tectonics would have disrupted those currents. We'd expect that. But the secularists believe that plate tectonics happened slowly over billions of years. And so they would say, you know, the, the, the magnetic field flipped very slowly over millions of years, mm. and that actually somehow recharges it. So it's basically- uh, in the time that we've been able to measure the magnetic field, we've just happened to be on a downturn, but eventually we're going to bounce back up then. That's exactly what the secularists would say. Huh. We creationists don't expect it'll ever get any stronger. It, we, we think it'll continue to decay. There's no mechanism to flip it today. Hmm. The Because uh, the plate tectonics that's left over today from the flood is is minimal. There's a little bit of continental drift left, but not much. Mm -hmm. So most of that happened during the flood year. There's no mechanism to do it today. And it is, frankly, it is a, it is an assumption on the secularist part that that mechanism would actually somehow recharge the magnetic field. There is evidence that flipping it like that actually makes it de this, the energy decay even quicker. Hmm. And so we think the energy has simply decayed since creation, even though the, the sign flipped uh, rapidly during the flood year. But it's something like with that happens. issue, that, that, would that would have to be their explanation, right? Because they, they couldn't concede yeah. that it's just going to continue to go down because that would point to a young earth. Yeah, yeah, okay. so they would have to say it, it, it's it's not an exponential decay, hmm. um, and there is there is a mechanism like that on the sun, but that that's caused by differential rotation. The fact that the sun's equator uh, rotates faster than the poles, and the sun can do that because it's a ball of gas. Earth Earth can't do that because hmm. it's more or less solid. Now the you know the core is uh, magma at least at some point, but there's no evidence of differential rotation hmm. on the Earth. So we don't think that's that mechanism is viable for the Earth or any of the solid planets. And, um, now, and, but, it, and the other thing too, is that their, their dynamo model requires that the magnetic field should be aligned with the rotation axis. And for earth, it's not, it's maybe 11 degrees off. It's not too, too far off, but for Uranus and Neptune, it's way off. They're mm. not even remotely aligned. And so mm. that is contrary to the explanation, the, contrary to the expectation mm. of the uh, magnetic dynamo models. So that's, that's their explanation. It's, uh, as I said, I don't think it's a very good one. Um, and then with the internal heat, um, it's interesting because Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune all have that internal heat, and Uranus doesn't, <laughs> even though Uranus and Neptune are almost identical in every way. And Neptune's the one that's farther away from the sun. You might expect it to be colder, but it's got, it's got more internal heat than Uranus. And I've read a couple of papers where secularists have tried to explain that, but they basically have to invoke four different mechanisms one for each of the giant planets. And so that's not, that's not a very compelling uh, scientific answer. And in, in science, you want something to be as simple as possible, Occam's razor. And so the fact that they have to employ four different mechanisms to get the four different, to explain four, four data points, that's not, that's not a very powerful explanation. I, I do give them their, that their explanation on Saturn. I don't use Saturn's internal heat because their explanation kind of works for Saturn. So it's okay. Because mm -hmm. uh, they think maybe the helium settling, settling into the inner layers would generate heat, which it would. Huh. And mm -hmm. Saturn's uh, surface atmosphere is slightly depleted in helium. So, okay, I'll give you that one, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't see how you're going to explain away Jupiter's internal heat or Neptune's. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And, and just a, a really simple, another one, uh, doesn't Venus spin backwards? It does. Yeah. It, how do they explain that one? <laughs> Why is Venus spinning the wrong way? <laughs> I have yet to see a good explanation of that. The um, huh. because yeah, the 
in the, um, the, the, the secular model for the formation of our solar system is that it formed from a, a collapsing nebula. And conservation of angular momentum means once something's spinning, it'll tend to spin the same way and at the same, with the same sort of rate. And um, that being the case, all the planets really ought to be spinning the, way, the same way as they collapsed. And hmm. Venus is just exactly backwards. Hmm. It's, 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 it's rotation axis is not, to, or you, you can think of it as being turned exactly upside down if you like. Hmm. It okay. rotates forwards, but it's exactly upside down. Or you can think of it as upright and spinning backwards. Hmm. Mathematically, they're the same. Hmm. Uh, so either one. And then Uranus is tilted on its side. So it, it doesn't obey that law either. And, huh. and nor does Neptune. Neptune's also tilted, or um, not Neptune, Pluto is also tilted on its side. Hmm. Uh, the only one that really obeys the rule well is Jupiter. And hmm. it's tilted a little bit. Even the sun doesn't obey the rule that well. The sun's tilted seven degrees relative to the plane of the, the planets. So it's tilted a little bit too. But yeah, Venus is exactly backwards. Uh, usually the way they'll try to explain these odd rotations is giant impacts. But I, boy, that's hard to explain on Venus because it's just exactly back. What, you know, how, I, I once did a, just kind of a back of the envelope calculation to think how many asteroids would have to hit Venus to stop it and then get right. it to go the other way. Yeah. And they'd all have to hit on kind of on the same side, you know, to, to deliver the angular momentum. And it's enormous. It's enormous amount. So I, I find huh. that very implausible. Um, so, yeah. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> well, uh, I don't want to belabor the magnetic fields and internal heat, but I, I am curious that probably, I mean, that has to relate directly to the second law of thermodynamics, right? Yeah. The heat one does. Okay. Uh -huh. And does that mean then that for the secular scientist who wants to exclude the idea of biblical creation, when looking at something like the internal heat of planets, you have to go against a scientific principle in order to maintain the overarching presupposition? Uh, yes, in a way. Um, because I mean, I, I'm just thinking, like, isn't that so inconsistent? Like they they say that this is the a law, second law of thermodynamics, yeah. and then you have to break that law to make sense of your presupposition. I, yeah, although I think any mechanism they would propose would not directly violate the second law of thermodynamics. Okay. There there are ways to get around it. It's just that they're they're more they're more complicated than the the creationist explanation, hmm. and and they have less uh, predictive power as well. So yeah, like with the magnetic fields, you could, you could argue that, you know, well, it did this in the past. Okay. But it's doing this today. Right. And so that, that does seem to violate their own presupposition of uniformitarianism. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of examples of that. In fact, most of the, most of the arguments, maybe I should explain this. Uh, most of the arguments that we would make for a young earth, a young universe that's thousands of years old, rather than billions are, are in the form of a reductio ad absurdum. We're temporarily assuming the conditions of that that our, our secular colleagues would assume and then show that they lead to an inconsistency, mm. like the rate at which the moon's moving away from the earth. It's a one over our sixth relationship. The uniformitarian assumption would be that that's always been the case. But if you apply that assumption, the earth and moon would have been in contact at 1.4 to 1.5 billion years in a hypothetical past which is far shorter than the 4.5 billion years for the age of the earth and moon that secularists assume. Mm. So it's not that I'm arguing that the earth and moon really are 1.4 billion years old. My point is they can't be older than that based on the secular assumptions that mm. these rates are uh, comparable to today. Not that, I mean, the rate's not linear, but that it's always been a one over R to the sixth uh, relationship. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Now there are, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, some, some Christians out there who want to marry the idea of an old earth, old universe with the Christian worldview. Uh, lots of notable names, if we wanted to throw names out there, have kind of capitulated on that and said, well, 
yeah, let's embrace the billions of years old narrative. What are the problems with trying to marry that secular scientific view of the universe and then the Christian worldview? Yeah, there are, there are two primary ones that I would, I would call attention to. First of all, you'd never get millions of years just by reading the Bible. I mean, let's just be honest about it. If, yeah. you just re- if, if you're stranded on a desert island and all you had was the Bible, you would never come up with millions of years. Let's, let's just be honest. That comes from a secular view that rejects biblical history and the motivation for believing in the millions of years. The original motivation was to do away, to do away with the Bible. The, the, the folks that, you know, um, uh, James Hutton, Charles Lyell, and, and others who promoted the uniformitarianism, they wanted to dispel this idea that there's ever been a global flood. They wanted to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. And then that paved the way for Darwin. Uh, y- you need the millions of years for evolution to sound even remotely plausible, because mm-hmm. we all know that you can't get elephants from bacteria in 6,000 years. Even the evolutionists would concede that. But they think given enough time, almost anything can happen. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, time, time is gives the you something where you can sweep all of the ugly details under this giant rug of time and anything can happen in a billion yeah. years. So that, that, that's one of the, that's the motivation for it. But my point is you'd never get that from scripture. And I've heard every possible explanation people have tried to come up with how they can twist the scriptures to, for it to allow for billions of years. Well, the days weren't really days. No, they were really days. Uh, if you go back into your homework, there's no doubt that's what that Moses intended. God created in six days. Well, there's gaps between them. No, there's no, there's no gaps between any of these arguments that people come up with are eisegetical. They're reading into the text based on uh, what secular scientists say. And I would point out that that is a dangerous precedent because if you were consistent, you'd have to reject the resurrection of Christ mm. because secular scientists say that's not possible. And in there, they've actually got some pretty good evidence that dead things stay dead. I mean, go to a you know, cemetery and watch for a little while. Uh, that seems to be pretty good science that generally dead things stay dead. Well, generally they do, but God can make an exception. And so uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't reinterpret the resurrection uh, to fit secular ideas. So that's the first hmm. issue. The second, and it's one that most people don't think about, death before sin. If you got fossils that are hundreds of millions of years old, you got death before human beings even existed. Because even the, the secularists say human beings don't go back hundreds of millions of years. Human beings are recent, 100,000 100, to uh, like a million years in the secular view. So you, if you've got a fossil that's 100 million years old, you got death before humans existed, which means you've got death before Adam sinned, because Adam didn't sin before he existed. But doesn't the Bible say that death came into the world as a result of Adam's sin? Is not death the enemy? That's what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is an enemy, and it will be destroyed uh, by Christ in the future. And so, um, and, and in fact, the gospel message is predicated on that, that death is the penalty for sin. It's something that entered the world when Adam sinned, and because Adam was put in charge of all the earth, all the creatures, the earth was cursed as a result of Adam's sin. So even, even animals die now. It's not their fault. It's Adam's fault, but he was in authority. That's the way authority works. Mm-hmm. When, our, when our leaders do something stupid, we all suffer as a result of that. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of authority. And so um, my point is, if death existed long before Adam existed or sinned, then death is not the penalty for Adam. It's not the penalty for sin. And if that's not the penalty for sin, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Mm-hmm. You see that death is the penalty for sin is foundational to the gospel that Jesus took our place on the cross, paid our penalty, which is death. And he, and he's an infinite, he's an infinite being because Jesus being man is also God. And so he can pay for the sins of, uh, of all, all his people and has, uh, but that's all undermined. If you believe in millions of years, death cannot be the penalty for sin. If you believe fossils are hundreds of millions of years old. Mm-hmm. 
what I hear you saying is that if you give up Genesis one and two, the literal understanding, the original contextual understanding of Genesis one and two, and you're consistent, you lose everything. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. You lose the whole Bible. There's, there's a reason why God put Genesis first. It really is foundational uh, to the other scriptures. And uh, not, it's not any, I mean, all the Bible's inspired by God. It's not that it, Genesis is any more inspired, but it is more foundational. Hmm. It sets up the problem. It tells us here, here's the problem. We notice that the world has some problems in it today. Genesis tells us how those began. It wasn't because God made mistakes. It was because God gave human beings the freedom to choose to obey him or to disobey him. And we chose poorly. And we've inherited that nature from Adam. We, we make bad choices all the time. We, we're sinners by nature. And that's the problem. And then Jesus, the Messiah, is the solution to that problem. If we have faith in him, he's willing to pay for our sins on the cross. And uh, that all is gone if you accept the millions of years, even if you don't believe in evolution, but you believe in the millions of years of death and suffering before Adam sinned, I'm sorry, but the, the Bible says when God saw everything he'd made, behold, it was very good. Mm. It's not going to be full of death. And so, you know, we find fossils with disease in them, things like cancer and arthritis. There's an entire field called paleopathology that studies disease in fossils. Now, was, were those already in the world when God looked at it and said, oh, it's very good? I don't think so. Mm. Uh, Jesus healed mm. the sick. He recognized that sickness and death are an intrusion in the world. So Jesus healed the sick and he, he, re he resurrected the dead as well. Hmm. Now, it'll just so happen to be that uh, the majority of our audience listening to this, they're not astrophysicists. They're not scientists. <laughs> um, in fact, they probably don't even have those things as hobbies in their lives. So what's the best way that Christians listening to this and they're hearing, okay, you got these competing worldviews of the secular narrative and the biblical narrative. And they know that they're called to engage the world, to go out and to evangelize and to uh, be ambassadors for Christ. What's the best way that just the typical Christian layperson can engage secularists on this issue? Uh, first of all, recognize that the Bible is true from cover to cover, even though the secularists claims he doesn't believe that. And that includes Romans 1. Most mm. Christians do Rome, most Christians do apologetics as if. Romans 1 is false. They don't really believe it. And that's a shame because Romans 1 is true. Uh -huh, <laughs> and yeah. one of the things Romans 1 tells us is that everybody knows God. God has made himself known, but people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so let's say somebody comes up to me and they say, you know, I'm an atheist. Now, now most Christians would say, oh, well, then I need to present evidence to you that God exists. You're just not aware of the evidence mm -hmm. for God. That's wrong. According to Romans 1, that guy already knows God exists, and he's, suppress he's actively suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. He knows God. He doesn't want to know God. Mm -hmm. And so my goal as an apologist is not to give him new evidence for God. He already has a universe of evidence for God, mm -hmm. such, such that there's no excuse. The Bible says in Romans 1.20, there's no excuse for his rejection of God, none. So I don't have to give him new evidence for God. What I try to do as an apologist is expose his suppressed knowledge of God. So somebody comes up to me and says, you're an he says, I'm an atheist. I say, no, you're not. You know God. In fact, I know you know God. And in your heart of hearts, you know you know God because your behavior demonstrates that. The fact that you were able to walk up to me tells me you believe that gravity will continue to work for the next three or four seconds the way it has worked in the past. And that is a Christian presupposition because God has promised cycles of nature that will continue in the futures they have in the past. Um, anything that he assumes, he assumes that he needs to be logical. That's a Christian presupposition. So the, the, thing, the thing that we need to remember is that secularists do know God in their heart of hearts. That doesn't mean that they know every aspect of God. It doesn't mean that they 
God hasn't necessarily revealed internally that he made in six days and so on. I, I understand that. But nonetheless, people do know God. And so, and we, when we read God's word, there's something that rings true to that. Don't be embarrassed about using God's word. Somebody says, well, I don't believe that's the word of God. I said, well, you should. I mean, that, that, that's, that's your problem because uh, if you, if you reject this, you're reduced to foolishness. And so ha- have a boldness, but also have a humility, recognizing that uh, unless God had opened your eyes, you'd be in exactly the same boat as the person that you're witnessing to. And if you have that attitude, then you really can't be arrogant because you realize I, I was you at one point. And unless God had opened my eyes, I'd still be you. And, and let me tell you, uh, I, I hope I hope and pray God will open your eyes. And let, let me give you some things to think about. But I would I would uh, proceed along the lines of the book that, that you pointed out earlier, uh, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. That basically is an instruction manual on how to do apologetics from a, from a very basic um, perspective that shows you, you don't have to know a lot about science. You just have to know that science works because that only makes sense in a Christian worldview where God has imposed orderliness on nature. And, there, and we can uncover that orderliness because God has made us in his image. He made our mind. He made the universe. They go together. Our mind can understand, to some extent, the universe. Uh, and God made our senses. Got, the Bible says God made the seeing eye and the, the hearing ear. And so we'd expect them to be basically reliable. So I can use my eyes and ears to learn about the universe. Uh, I'm not like in the matrix or something like that, where I'm just a brain in a jar and this is all fake. You know, mm. it's a real universe and the Christian worldview can justify that. Mm. So that's the thing you need to recognize. Everybody does know God. People don't want to know God because it interferes with the way they want to live. And so they work very hard to, to convince themselves and others that they don't believe in God. And what I try to do is expose their suppressed knowledge of God by pointing out all the other things they believe science, logic, morality, none of those make sense in an atheistic universe, or frankly, any universe other than the Christian one. This will work on other religions as well, the, the Muslim, the Hindu, and so on. It'll work on them too. Well, Dr. Lyle, you are my favorite Christian scientist. You uh, are Thank impressive. You. you have a good ministry. And I mentioned uh, you know, these two books, Fractals, which is my next one to purchase. We want to use that in our homeschool curriculum. And Ultimate Proof of Creation, we'll link to both of those in the show notes. But uh, for people listening who are maybe just getting introduced to you, what are the best ways that they can connect with you? What's next for your ministry and how can people support you? Okay. Well, uh, the main way to connect with us is our website, uh, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Altogether, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. There it is. All kinds of free articles on that website. I have a heart for students. Students don't have money. So (laughs) all the articles are free. There you go. And I try to put out one. I try to get them out every week, but it's usually sometimes it's every other week. Uh, but I also, I also speak at various churches and so on. There's a way if you want to set, set one of those up. Now, for that, I charge a little bit, but that's just because it, it, takes, it takes a lot of energy to, to travel and go mm-hmm. places. But um, there's a list on the lower left of, on the website on the front page of where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be speaking on. Um, we have a, a, a page on Rumble. Actually, if you go to our website and you, go, you click on videos, you'll see there's, there's a list of, um, of mm-hmm. webcasts that we do because some people are more visual learners and I want, I want to appeal to them as well. And then, of course, we have the, the web store on our website. And so you can click on store and get all the, the different uh, books and DVDs that I've done. Mm-hmm. And so those are ways to get in touch with us. If, if people want to support us, they can do that. There's a, there's a partner tab. You click on that and then you can uh, contribute either a one-time donation or uh, a monthly. If We have kind of a subscription thing where if you give $20 or more per month, it opens up this forum where you can ask questions of me directly hmm. or other um, folks who are, who are 
supporters as well. Most of them are biblical creationists and hmm. sometimes they can answer the questions better than I can. So uh, those are all resources we make available uh, to you. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today and sharing My all pleasure. of that. I know this will be a blessing to lots of people. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks.